welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Well, good morning, Eastside. It's good to be with you today. How about some love for the worship team this morning? Yeah. Well, as we um, wrap up our Saving Justice series, I hope that it has been uh, more than just nice or something that we thought, that's good, but actually something that's moving our heart. And today, is, if you're, uh, this is your first week, and we are going to be talking about incarceration and if that stirs things up for you, we have uh, pastoral care available for you at any point during the service if you feel a need for that. And so if you are on the prayer team, would you raise your hand so people know if you look around, you can see who to go to um, and feel free to take advantage of that. Imagine, if you would, a world where we were all identified by our worst mistake. Uh, A world where when you introduced yourself, you weren't Rick or Lisa or whoever, but you were that person with the worst mistake tied to your name that you've ever made. So it would sound something like, I am so-and-so the adulterer. I'm so-and-so the thief, the gossip, the liar. In a world like that, where that worst mistake you ever made had the power to name you, that would not be a very free world to live in. And you could imagine that you would want to advocate for yourself at some point. Like, yes, I did that, but that was 15 years ago, right? You would want the opportunity to explain that you have changed. But in that world that we just described, it didn't matter. It was just the label, and you were going to carry it for the rest of your life. And so what would your label be? You don't have to say it out loud. For those who have experienced incarceration, that is often how it is. That's how it works. They are named by their worst sin, their worst action, in some cases their worst accusation. And the ability to say, I have changed, or this is who I am now, is tainted by those and and marked by those big terms, felon, convict, right? And the church of all people, we should be the ones that understand the power of God's grace and forgiveness, the power to be renamed, to be born again, to become a new creation. Because this is what we preach, right? I love the psalmist's cry in Psalm 68, verse 5. If 
you have a Bible, you can turn with me there and follow around. Um, if the tech works, you'll be able to read it. If not, just listen along. As, the, as David writes, he says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families, and he leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. David's saying that the God that we believe in, the God that we cry out to, that is Father and Son and Spirit, is not just a distant deity or someone who is looking down with a scowl and keeping score, but he is a God that is a God of compassion, who becomes the father to the fatherless who defends the widow, who takes those who are lonely in a society that has no place for them and sets them in families and takes those who are prisoners and leads them out with singing. It's not just leading them out, but with singing, that something has happened. They weren't singing on their way in, but they're singing on their way out. That's who our God is. In Luke chapter 4, there is this great picture of Jesus teaching in the synagogue early on. And he goes and he takes the scroll of Isaiah. They were like written in big scrolls. They didn't have chapters and verses on them. That was put in, uh, those were put in by a drunk person in the 1800s. The scroll was just no verses or anything. And so they, he walks over and he opens the scroll and he opens it to this prophecy that 700 plus years before Isaiah had prophesied about the anointed one who would come, the Messiah. And he opens the scroll and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after he reads this, he rolls up the scroll and he sets it down and he tells everyone, this is fulfilled in your hearing. What he was saying is that he was the one Isaiah was talking about. And he was saying that this is my job description, that as you watch me serve and minister, as you watch my life, this is what you will see me doing. That I will be the one anointed by the Spirit. I will be proclaiming good news to the poor, those whom the world never has good news for. Those are the people I will preach good news to. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, people who are experiencing the greatest sort of unfreedom, being bound, being constricted. He says, I will proclaim freedom for those people. That I will, uh, I will recover the sight for the blind, that those who can't see will see and I will set those who are oppressed free. He says, 
when you see me do what I do, this is what I will be doing. Now, you would think that you would hear them just just raise up in this great ovation that finally their king has come, like they're stoked. But instead, they took him to a cliff and tried to throw him off it. And what you realize is the the preaching of scandalous grace, radical grace, is not welcome in a world that is based on our own power and our own righteousness. We want to be able to hold ourselves up above one another so that we can somehow justify ourselves, right? But the God who is, is a God who meets us in our worst moments. Who meets us in our own prisons. Who meets us in our own unfreedom. Who meets us in our own oppression and sets us free. You know, in Scripture, not only does Jesus speak this, but Scripture proves it. If we were to know the Bible characters by their worst moments... We wouldn't hear Moses, a friend of God. We'd hear Moses, the murderer. That's how Moses starts out. And it is running from the law after murdering someone that he meets God in the burning bush. We wouldn't hear the apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. We would only know Saul, the guy who murders and mass murders Christians and followers of Jesus. If our worst moments named us, we wouldn't have most of the Bible. But because we have a God who meets us in those moments, who says, I am the father to the fatherless. I set the oppressed free. I lead the prisoners out. I am the one that you are counting on to save you, then we get to celebrate not only our own experience of the fact that if Jesus sets you free, you're free indeed, but we get to extend that to the world around us. See, when we think of our own righteousness, when we compare, like, am I better than this person? Am I better than that person? We are measuring in millimeters, Right. And God measures by football fields. Right. So the holiness of God is like three football fields long. And he looks down at us and we're going, I am so much better than that person. And he would have to get out a magnifying glass to look at the little tiny millimeters and be like, yeah, yeah, I guess you are real good. You're like, you know, two millimeters better than that person. But then he spans out to where his holiness dwells. And he looks down and he's like, I can't even see your righteousness. But that's okay. Because I'm going to give you my sons. I'm going to give you my sons. And all of you get the football field. Right? Because that's what I see when I see you. And that's who our God is. But how dare us to turn after we've received the football field and start measuring in millimeters, right? And the church, unfortunately and historically, is real good at 
the metric system, right? <laughs> and it's our invitation, our command, our call, that if you're going to drink from that cup of grace, you better have another one for your brother and for your sister. Amen? Amen. So I want to introduce someone that you probably have, needs no introduction but someone on our staff who has experienced God meeting her in that kind of moment. And we are so grateful for what God has done in her life. Will you welcome with me Chelsea Gerlach as she comes. Hello, hello. Man, y'all going to make me cry up here. <laughs> Uh, I'm Chelsea. I am the director of Refuge um, at Central, and I am really excited to be at Eastside um, today. I'm going to tell you why I'm especially excited about Eastside towards the end. But <laughs> um, first, the reason that I'm here is I um, I'm on staff of the church. I have been for a while, but I would not be here. I would not even be following Jesus today if I hadn't spent time in prison. Um, that's just part of my story. Um, I wasn't raised in the church. I would say I was raised more in a in like an anti-Christian kind of home. I only heard growing up that the church was an institution of oppression full of hypocrites. Um, and I was doing just fine trusting in my own self. Thank you very much. Um, I was trusting in things that I was doing and the people that I was around and didn't have any reason to kind of ask those questions until my life fell apart and I found myself in a maximum security jail cell facing a life sentence. Um, and I needed grace. And I reached out to I didn't know what. <laughs> and God came to me in that cell in a way that I couldn't deny, I couldn't ignore. It changed everything for me. Um, but it took me a lot of time. I ended up doing eight years and spent that whole time just wrestling through, what does this mean? What does this mean about who I am and what's true? Um, and kind of just trying to figure out, who is this God and do I want to follow? And, um, I read the Bible for the first time and, you know, just right at the beginning, you know, there's Exodus and God is intervening in history to free captives. And that really spoke to me about the character of this God. Um, and then I started going to church. And I was in church whenever the church was open. <laughs> I went to all the classes. I was asking a lot of questions. Um, and what really was significant to me was to see the people of God. Um, to, to see the, the joy and the hope that, uh, that these people had and the way that they cared for other people. And in prison, it's just a very extreme environment. And it felt like this clear, stark contrast of I could see the path that leads to death in a very real way uh, for many of us. Uh, and I could see the path of life. Um, so I did get baptized in prison, um, but then I got out and I was like, I don't know, the people in prison know that they need God like they need air. Um, and that was the kind of church that I wanted to be in, and I didn't know if that existed on the outside, but I came to Amaga Day, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and I just felt like this was a church where people were really trying to be obedient to what Jesus calls us to. And um, 
Then I, <laughs> I so then I jump into all the ministries and I'm serving. I'm greeting at the door. I had an ankle monitor um, on and I was serving with the kids <laughs> with my ankle monitor. <laughs> and there was this dad one time. He was dropping off his daughter and um, and he's like, "Tell me about that." <laughs> And I told him a little bit about my story, and he's like, okay, he leaves his daughter with me, you know. <laughs> um, but I appreciated that. You know, he's trying to be a good dad and protect his kid. And when we talk about working with incarcerated people, there's there's wisdom there, right? Um, there are people that have done dangerous things. And um, so it's wise to make those discernment. Um, but I really was embraced by this church. I really felt welcomed in this community. Um, but I'm going to tell, so this is why I love you said, I'm going to tell you now. Um, Rick doesn't know this, I don't think. <laughs> I, I almost left Imago Day. I had actually made the decision that I was going to leave Imago. And then the very next week it was announced that, um, that we were hiring Eric Knox. And I was like, all right, I'll stick around and see how this works out. Because this, I, I loved Imago Day, but it was too white for me. <laughs> this is the honest truth. Um, Mike last week talked a little bit about sentencing disparity in prison, and I just experienced that. I was in a federal prison in the South, and there are very few, there were very, very few white people there. Um, so it was, I, um, the English service was a black church. I mean, it, it, it was. And then I went to the Spanish-speaking church as well. And um, I am a white girl from rural Oregon. I uh, was convicted of terrorism. Uh, I cooperated in the government investigation, as everyone else in my case did, so I was labeled a traitor um, and a snitch. Um, and those people embraced me and welcomed me and gave me a place to belong. And I didn't realize how much um, you know, my ancestors left their country and came to America and made their own way. And then my parents left the East Coast and went out West and started a homestead. And I had these, like pioneer ideas of independence, like I'm just supposed to make it on my own. And those communities taught me the truth of the gospel, that we are designed for relationship. We are designed to do this together, and they showed me grace. And so when we, um, when we talk about wrapping around ex-cons, as I love that we're pressing into and doing that, um, and as we talk about diversity, as Eastside is really doing, this is not charity. This is the opportunity that we get, that God gives us to participate in the miracles that God does when we just show up as the people of God together. When we bring all of our diverse life experiences and just walk this out in obedience of following Jesus. Um, so thank you for doing that and thank you for welcoming me. Uh, as part of your service today. <laughs> Amen. Aren't you glad that our God meets us in our hardest moments, right? Because we wouldn't have Chelsea and so many other people that actually become the blessing that, that fill out who we are supposed to be as the Imago Dei. Um, thank you for sharing. Thanks for sticking around, being patient with us. Amen. When one of the things that is so important that we understand 
is that the people of God are all equal before the cross. And I think it's easy for us to understand in moments, um, but to quickly kind of think we're progressing from there, and then we begin to other people, right? I love what Psalm 142 says in verse 6. It says, listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And what he's saying is that that there are moments where each one of us experiences that unfreedom in our life. Our own prisons that we have to cry out from. Right. Set me free from my prison. And so we should be able to at least identify, if not with the experience, completely with the cry. Right. That we can identify with the cry and we are to carry this redemptive hope for others. And that includes the prisoner. I think for some of us, it includes everybody but a certain group of people. And we fill in whatever that group of people is based on our millimeter calculations. But I'm telling you, that kind of false gospel, the gospel of almost all grace, doesn't give us Moses, doesn't give us Paul, and it doesn't give us salvation. I love in chapter 9 of uh, Acts, you know, Saul has been on this rampage killing Christians. And it says when he came to Jerusalem, he's experienced Christ. He's knocked him off the horse. And he says he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And you can imagine, right? If you heard the stories, you've watched Stephen die You've went to the memorial services and then you hear that the guy that led the killing of your friends is now a Christian and he's sitting in the back row Sunday morning with his hands up. And you're like, yeah, right. Come on, you've never said that about anybody before? Let alone Saul. And I love verse 27, it says, but Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And and it is a gift of God that he puts the Barnabases in our life, right? The person that, that even though no one else is going to believe that God is really doing this in your life, because we are tainted by our own versions of righteousness, our own limitations that we've put on the grace of God. But what Barnabases do is that they believe Not in the person's ability to change, but the power of the gospel to change the person. Right? Let me say that again. 
they believe not in the person's ability to change, but in the power of the gospel to change the person. And that is a world of difference. Amen? Because what that means is that he can look at this murderer, this person who has blood on his hands from his friend, and he can see the power of God and say, that is not a murderer anymore. That is my brother. Right? That Saul has died and been buried with Christ, and Paul has been raised with Christ. And that's got to be true. If it's true for you, it's got to be true for him. The book of Acts says, Barnabas was a good man full of faith. We see Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 and he hears of needs in the community and he sells a part of his property so that he can meet those needs. We see him later getting in an argument with Paul, the one he's defending, because Paul doesn't think that John Mark has what it takes. And he go, and it's as if Barnabas is like, Paul, Paul, Paul. Put your little millimeter ruler away. This is John Mark. And they break off and they go two different ways. But I love uh, one of Paul's letters towards the end of his life. He says, send me John Mark because I have use of him. Right? Like Paul got there. But the Barnabas and the Barnabases among us are those who never quit believing that Christ has the power to change the person. And I confess, there are people in my life that I have quit praying for at times. Quit thinking God is, not that God can't, but maybe that they're not interested or whatever it is, but I just lose that perseverance. When I moved up here, I was 19 years old. I had this radical experience of salvation, walked into church on Palm Sunday, didn't even know why I was going to church. I thought they were reading my palms. Literally, I thought that's what we were doing. Because I didn't know why would you call it Palm Sunday. And so I was sitting in the back. And within nine months, God was calling me up here to Bible college. And I remember lamenting leaving, thinking I have all these friends and all these like brothers and sisters in life that I've spent you know, these years with. And who's going to share the faith? with them, Lord. And then, you know, he's kind of like, well, I am pretty good at saving people. So go, go, go to Oregon. And then you fall out of touch with those people, right? Like you get married, you're raising kids, whatever you're doing, you're working, you're doing your life. And, and so I kind of lost track of like where some of my closer friends from back then were. Yesterday, my friend Brian Thomas calls me, and Brian and I were super close friends. And in fact, he was trying to get me to go to Florida with him for spring break, and I couldn't afford it, so I stayed home, and I got saved. And then he came back from spring break. He's like, it's amazing, right? It's like 50-cent beers and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a, I go to church now. <laughs> And I remember the look on his face was so like, okay, uh, like, what does that mean? So I'm talking to him on the phone yesterday, 
and he tells me that he gave his life to Christ January of this year. Yeah, amen. Isn't that cool? And what it does in me is like, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, like now that he's 50, like he has this moment. And, and I, I have a timeline that I also sort of measure in millimeters, right? And if he doesn't act on my clock, I'm like, ah, well, whatever. And the reality is we, like Barnabas, are never supposed to give up hope because it's never too late, right? It's never too late. And I'm on the phone talking to him, and he goes, well, God's going to take care of that. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. And he's like, I'm following Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, like the good book says. (laughs) I'm like, whoa. (laughs) He didn't just get saved. He got all the way saved, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) he started witnessing to me for the last half hour. I was like, okay. But the invitation, right, and and, and really the, the compulsion, it's what Paul says, compelled by the Spirit. That we are to be a people compelled by that Barnabas spirit that says, I will believe, right? I will go take them, spend time with them, hear their story, bring them into the community, introduce them to brothers and sisters, let them know that they are in a family now. Because quite honestly, there just aren't a lot of people for whatever reason, I don't know if it's personality or what, like Chelsea, who's just going to show up and join every ministry, or like me, who's going to wander in and whatever, look for the palm reader, right? Like, like we need the Barnabases. And some of you, God has anointed and he's called and he's saying, this is you, right? And all those things that we've been talking about throughout Saving Justice, places you can be plugged in, Those are opportunities for us as a community to begin to practice a a gospel that we ourselves are preaching to us, to extend that courageously to other people. One of the stories that, that continues to sort of blow my mind is is that not only does God meet people in prison like Chelsea experienced, but that prisoners are so radically changed that they are leading ministry in prison themselves. Church planting movements are taking place in prisons. So in Angola, which at one point was the largest and most violent prison, it has been radically transformed by the Gospels. The the violent assault rate dropped from from 1,350 to about 350 in just a couple years. And it's not because of necessarily the wardens or the programs, but it's because the prisoners are being transformed by the gospel. And so it's not like they do have chaplains and they have ministries, but these are prisoner-led ministries. They right now have 308 graduates from a seminary that runs in the, in the prison. They have 170 pastors. Yes, amen. And those pastors act like social mentors. They they do hospice all the like from the time they walk in to the time they die if they die in prison, those pastors are ministering to them in Angola. 
Two of the prisoners came to the Lord and said, we've been reading in the book of Acts and the, they were sent out, right, to start churches in other places. So we want you to send us not out of the prison system, but to another prison to start a church. And they did it right. Like that is crazy. Amen. And so what what you see is we should be we should envision a gospel that has so radically changed these men and women that we're talking about that if you were able to visit them in prison, you would be looking at someone that you wanted to disciple you. Right. Like they have more spiritual maturity, more biblical knowledge, more time walking by faith than we do. Because it's not a will we kind of look, you know, like Chelsea was saying, it's not charity. It's recognizing the spirit of Christ in the other person. It's seeing Jesus in them and knowing that they have something to offer me. A lot of people believe that Hebrews was written by Barnabas. I don't know if that's true. We don't know who wrote it, but I like to think that he wrote it. And in chapter 13 of Hebrews, it writes, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were mistreated. There are so many takeaways that we can move forward from from here. And some of you may be called to plug into one of those areas. Some of you, God is asking you to see certain people in your life differently. Others of you, God has is stirring your heart to forgive, and that is not an easy thing to do. And yet, He calls us and invites us into and says, by the Spirit of God, I will give you the power to forgive as you've been forgiven. And the only reason that we have any hope that we could actually do this as a community is because Jesus, who who left the glory and the freedom of heaven as the Son of God and took on the, the condemnation of our humanity, imprisoned himself in our human body, right? tried before a jury of his peers that shouted crucified, unjustly arrested when he had never sinned, and crucified by a corrupt Roman justice system. That Jesus that says, remember the prisoner, he says it because he became one to set you free. Now, we need to be able to extend that message to those who are in prison. Amen? Amen. So today we come to this table. A table where that Jesus who 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 took on our flesh, who bore an arrest, who stood before a jury of his peers and they shouted crucify, 
who Pilate condemned to die as king of the Jews, who was executed as a prisoner, said on the cross in his final breaths, Father, forgive them. They know what not what they do. And it is finished. And what he meant by it is finished is that we never have to measure one another's righteousness in millimeters again. Because the blood that was shed on that cross was accounted to our account. So that just as if I've never sinned, you have been justified by the grace of Jesus. And the Spirit of God invites you today to come and to surrender to the one who sets us free. To, to lay that worst thing we've ever done at the foot of the cross, knowing that it will never name us again. And to extend that freedom and announce that freedom and to embody that freedom one to another in this room today and to this community around us. Imago Day, the ones who Jesus has set free are free indeed. And that's us. And that gives us reason to praise him tonight, today. Would you pray with me? Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much that you meet us in our moments. And those moments may come when we're 18 or when we're 50, when we're in prison or when we're sitting in this room. But in your wisdom and in your mercy, by the power of your spirit, you take us from life to death. And so, God, would you come this morning by your spirit and would you pour your spirit out, pour your grace out, pour your mercy out, God? Would you set us free from judgment, free from accusation, free from suspicion? And would you give us that spirit of Barnabas? that believes that you can change absolutely anybody and that drinks deeply from that cup of transformation for ourselves. We love you. We love you. Thank you for taking on such such a prison for yourself to set us free. And thank you for conquering that prison and resurrecting on the third day and leaving sin and death and accusation and condemnation in the grave so that love and peace and joy and freedom could be tasted. Transform us, God. We got a long ways to go. So meet us in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.